Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. the executive director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really delighted and honored to have Hallie Efron on the podcast today. Hallie's a New York Times bestselling author of suspense novels reviewers have called deliciously creepy. Her newest, Careful What You Wish For, is about a professional organizer married to a man who can't pass a yard sale without stopping. It's a mashup of Antiques Roadshow and Strangers on a Train. A five-time finalist for the Mary Higgins Clark Award, her writing and selling your mystery novel was an Edgar Award finalist. Lee Child calls it the best how-to guide I have ever seen. I just wish I could have read it years ago. Hallie is a popular presenter at events and writing conferences. Welcome to the podcast, Hallie. I am so happy to be here. Sisters in Crime is like a second home for me, so... I'm looking forward to this, and it's so nice to be to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Hallie, we've talked about you on a few podcasts already. Um, Kelly Garrett sings the praises of your book over and over when she's talking about how to write a mystery. She's like, well, first of all, you got to buy Hallie Efron's book and read it. <laughs> and then you go from there. And Roberta Islip and I had a wonderful conversation, and she talked about how you said when you first met you got to join sisters in crime and you know look look how that worked out for sisters in crime um so you know you've had an influence on a lot of people myself included as a a, a mentor and as a teacher um and i want to talk about that but i also um you've got your own writing that you you've done um so i'm going to start at the beginning as i always do and then we're going to have a, a conversation about this and you know when did you say to yourself I want to be a writer. You grew up in a writing family, so it might have just been assumed. But, you know, when did you say, I want to write a, a book? Well, I spent a lot of time saying I don't want to write a book because people would say, what's wrong with you? You're the only one in your family who doesn't write. And I had to, well, basically ignore that because I wasn't writing because I wasn't writing. I was doing other things. I started, I'm a teacher at heart, yeah. really. That is why... I think I've had such an impact on other writers is because my first vocation is teaching. I love teaching. When I was a little kid, I did not want to be a ballerina. I wanted to be a teacher. And, uh, and I did that for many years. And then I got my PhD and worked in high tech and taught at the college level. And I did it. And I had babies at home and then teenagers at home. And it wasn't until my uh, youngest daughter started college that there started to be a room in the house Mm -hmm. That could be my office. And you know that a woman needs a place to write. Uh, yeah. I did. And I got, I remember I got a fax machine. <laughs> talk about, <laughs> talk about first uh, acquisitions that are looking forward looking. Um, in those days, we did need yeah. a fax machine if we were going to be sending our stuff anywhere. And I, of course, I got a computer, which was, a, you know, a, AKA a doorstop. It was enormous with a big lugging screen. And I started writing. The thing that kind of um, tipped me over was I got a call from a freelance writer who said she wanted to write a piece about me. And I said, why? I, I mean, I, I didn't even know how she'd gotten my name. She said, well, you're the only one who doesn't write. <laughs> and I said, if anyone's going to write about me not writing, it's going to be me. Um, and that kind of kicked me over. I did not start with mystery. I start with essays. And I think a lot of us do personal essays because for me, I needed to write about why I wasn't writing, yeah. <laughs> which is not yeah. a mystery. <laughs> and that's it. Um, and essays are their own. And, and that was a good introduction to how something that you think you can just fall into doing is not something that you can just fall into doing. Essays are particularly difficult and they have a particular structure and you mm -hmm. have to do it wrong at least a hundred times before you get it right. Or I do right. anyway. Yeah. 
And did you, um, as you're, you know, doing this and you've had these careers, did you start taking, uh, going into workshops, create a, find a writer's group, or did you, you know, feel confident enough in yourself to, to move forward? How did you know those first hundred times that you'd gotten it wrong? I did, I did join a writing group. I've been in three writing groups over the, over the years. I haven't been in a writing group for the last 10 years. Um, I got to the point where I felt like I, not only did I not need it anymore, it was slowing me, me down because I knew myself what was working and what wasn't. And I didn't need to, to be reading other people's work. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a real time sink. Uh, it's mm-hmm. great community when you need it. Um, but yeah, and I took classes in essay writing. I took a class at Harvard at Radcliffe, actually, what was then called Radcliffe Seminars, which doesn't exist anymore, with Arthur Edelstein, who's a wonderful, who was, he's now deceased, a wonderful teacher. And uh, that was a class in writing fiction. And that was some of the women in that group uh, were in a writing group with me after. And and yeah, I did a lot of that stuff. And I, and I got my first book published before I knew about Sisters in Crime. And I always feel like I probably could have gotten it published three years earlier if I had known about Sisters in Crime, but I didn't. I was floating around in the world of um, uh, creative writing rather than mystery writing, Um, in part because I really didn't know what I was working on. And so tell me about the journey to crime writing. Uh, you know, uh, because it's not always an obvious uh, detour from personal essays to crime writing, um, unless it's a way you're working out some aggression. So, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I like to read them. That's the first yeah. thing. Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't be writing something I don't like to read or that I haven't read a lot of. Um, but uh, my first, my first try at writing drama, I would call it. Um, was uh, when a dear, dear friend of mine from college had a terrible thing happen to her. Um, There was a murderer. She felt like the killer had been after her and killed her brother. And she was grief-stricken and guilt-ridden. And she just had, oh my goodness, a terrible breakdown. And the family was so badly uh, upset by it. And there were children that didn't have a daddy anymore. And so she and I met many times and I, I just chronicled everything she said, all of the memories. And I bit by bit turned it into a manuscript that Mm -hmm. was a true crime. And at some point realized I couldn't publish it. It was too personal and not Mm -hmm. her story. You know, Mm -hmm. the widow hadn't given her permission for us to write this. The orphan children had not given the the grandparents. There were so many people, very recognizable. And so then I tried to turn that into a novel um, and had an agent tell me, you shouldn't try to write fiction because you don't know how. And that was, of course, all I needed to hear. I, I could write fiction. But anyway, so I put that manuscript aside and um, teamed up with uh, uh, someone who has a really interesting life, which I didn't feel I'd had. I'd been a teacher. I'd worked at college. I'd worked in high tech. Very boring things. So how are you going to make a mystery out of that? Yeah. Uh, that, that doesn't just cause people to go to sleep. Well, my co-author, Don Davidoff, who's a dear friend from years back, friend of my husband's and mine, And he uh, is a psychologist who interviews people accused of murder. He he evaluates them, and he's an expert witness in trials. What an interesting story. And he runs a unit at the McLean. So it was like, wow, that's a great combination for a sleuth. So we worked together. He didn't want to write. I was desperate to write. He read the man at each of the pages that came out and helped me make them better. And he reads a ton of uh, crime fiction. So he was a good reader um, and a psychologist. So he knows how to package the bad news, you know? And, and so we, uh, we worked for about four years on the, on a manuscript that became the Dr. Peter Zak mystery series, 
which we eventually sold to St. Martin's, a two book contract, and then two more books, and then one more book. Yeah, and you wrote that as G.H. Efron, right? We did, so that was my maiden name, Efron, instead of my married name, Tauger. And uh, G, I forget where the G, it's Don's G and my age. Uh, he didn't think it would be good for him to be known. So in, uh, for the first book, he, he did not reveal his identity. But then it turned out it was just great fun for him to be a published mystery author. And colleagues were pleased for him and a little jealous. And it was, was a nice ride for him, I think. Tell me about the co-writing. That intrigues me because that's, I would imagine, difficult um, to do. I mean, it sounds like you did most of the fiction writing with with input from him, but you're still collaborating. Was it? And this is pre-Zoom. This is, you know, um, that some of the tools that we have now where things like that are a little bit easier. So did you meet regularly or how did that work? We did. We met every Sunday for four years. Every, wow. yeah, except, you know, holidays and, and so on. But, uh, yeah, uh, I would write, uh, we would meet for, uh, half a day. Like, uh, he would come at around 10 and we would finish up at around two. And I would have, if we were working on the outline, I would, you know, then he would go away and I would work on the outline. If we were working on a scene, he would go away and I would type up our notes and write a scene. And then I would email him what I had, and he would come back the next Sunday with uh, with notes, comments, what he liked, what he didn't like, what he thought we should change. I mean, he was just such a perfect person for me because he didn't want to write. Mm-hmm. I didn't want him to write. Uh, he really knew the court systems. He'd been face-to-face with murderers. He understood human psychology, and he loved murder mysteries, and he'd run a ton of them. So, I mean, how much luckier can you get? Uh, And as I say, he didn't want to write. That was the best part. Uh, But he liked to read, and he was a really good uh, critiquer. He could come back with... uh... Yeah, there were some places where we had struggles. I, I resisted writing sex and violence. I don't like to read sex and violence, graphic sex, although I know that it's in every story. It's just how much in the reader's face does it have to be. Right. Uh, And even though I don't write cozies, I still feel like in my books, I want, I would say I want to be creepy, not icky. (laughs) That's my my calling card. So, you know, and then we stuck with it. I think he would have given up before me. But see, I come from a writing family. I knew how hard it would be to get an Mm -hmm. agent. And I knew I didn't want anything short of a real literary agent and a real literary publisher. I would rather give up than what was then the only option, which was Vanity Press. Right. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and we got a lot of rejection. Even when I wrote a letter that said my sister Nora had read the manuscript and loved it, which was a lie. She would not read it. (laughs) <laughs> but she said I could say that in the letter. <laughs> so if anyone called her, she'd say, yeah, I did. You know, she would, you know, she would have supported me, but she didn't have time to read it. But, uh, but I, I just felt like I knew it was tough. Mm-hmm. And that's what Sisters in Crime, if I can, does for people, is it really gives you a pool of people. Then you can say, well, I, I'm getting a lot of rejections. Um, and here's one I just got. And what does this mean? Or, or, or this, yeah. uh, this uh, agent wants a, uh, what do they call it? A, uh, an exclusive. What do I say? Or this contract has this clause in it. Is that something that I should worry about? I mean, I think it's just a great pool of, of knowledge and people willing to share it so that you know if you send out 30 queries and you get 29 rejections and one person wants to see the manuscript, you're batting a 1,000. Yeah. You know, (laughs) (laughs) well, you've been such a great mentor to so many people because you're also very honest about this. When somebody asks you, you will tell them the truth. And I think that that's also a gift um, that many people in the crime writing community have. But you're 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 kind, but you're firm about 
you know, this is what you should expect and this is what you should look for. And, um, you know, before you jump on that, should, you know, think about this and which is a gift to people, um, truly a gift, because I think it's not an easy thing to navigate anyway, as you said, but to navigate it with unreal expectations is not a helpful thing. I mean, I think that it's one thing to be asked your opinion when a manuscript is in process, mm-hmm. and it's another thing to be asked your opinion when it's published. And I frankly avoid saying, I don't lie, but I don't necessarily pound on the hard truth that something that's already published isn't that good. Yeah. What is yeah. the point? The author cannot right. fix it. Right. However, if you're asking me to look at something that's in process and that you're open to hearing about it, I will try to do it in a way that is actionable. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not, this is bad. And I remember uh, Arthur Edelstein, the, that instructor I talked about, Whenever anyone would read something and then the class would react and he, w- he would say, if you said that was really good, he would slap you on the wrist. That is not a helpful thing to say. Be specific. Yeah. What's good about it or what's not good about it? Be as specific as you can. Um, and of course, when you're looking at someone's manuscript, it's like looking at their child. Yes. You have to have some positive things to say in order, I don't know, to soften them up. That's not really it. It's just so that so that they feel like you're respectful of the work that it took to do it. And then you need to tell them what it is. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, people just don't they just don't know. No, or they they think that they're in a place they're not ready to be yet. I mean, that's, you know, or or they're not moving forward fast enough um, for the, for their own sake. They're, they're stuck in a gear, uh, which certainly has happened to a lot of people. Um, now, four, it took you four years to get your first book contract. Ten years. Ten years. Ten years from when we started writing four years before we started, five years maybe, before we started sending it out. And then we got all rejections and then we revised it and it went out again. So the first bit was getting an agent. The Mm -hmm. second was revising it for the agent, revising it again for the agent, getting rejected by editors, revising it again based on the editor's comments. And then finally, when St. Martin's said, yes, they'd like to publish it. That was one of Kelly Raglan's first uh, acquisitions at St. Martin's. Wow. She's not the big cheese there. So writing a series, it took you 10 years. So, you know, I I love that you shared that with with listeners because for folks on the journey, it takes a long time. Um, And it's uh, harder than you ever thought it's going to be. It's, you see, we all get A's in English or we wouldn't (laughs) want to be writers. Right. But it's not the same. And it's the path of published author and writer is a, are two different paths. Uh, as a writer, you can control and go back at things, but as a published author, so much is out of your control, um, especially when you're looking to be on the traditional uh, route. And that's frustrating as well. It's you can write the best book in the whole world and it may not get published. That's just the way the business works. And it may not be your fault. It may not be the quality. In another year, a different book. It's what they're looking for. I mean, I always say they're always looking at the, I want it to be the same, but different. And you'll hear that a lot. Well, what the hell is that? (laughs) The same as what and different, you know, for a while they wanted Gone Girl, but different. So yeah. what did they get? The girl in the rear view mirror, the girl here, the, this, you know, the woman in the, you, you know, there's a million books. And then uh, when um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo came out, then you saw the same thing when uh, it's just, you know, these patterns in publishing, uh, it's, they're looking for, they're looking to sell books. That is the bottom line. And you yeah. have been trying to tell a story. And so you have totally different goals. I mean, it's the same in the theater business. You know, you can write the yeah. best play in the world, but if the if backers don't feel like audiences will pay for the tickets, you're not going to get right. any backing. It's it's a That's business. Right. So in your mind, you cannot. I do not believe you can write. Most of us, there are probably people who can. Most of us cannot write a, our first book and get it good enough if we're paying attention to the market. 
because it has to come from someplace in you that makes it uniquely yours and that you just, you know, work the hell out of. Um, after that, once you know what you're doing and you've popped out a few novels, pop, 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 uh, then I think uh, you, you can pick your head up out of the weeds and look at the market. But it takes at least, it takes me a year to write a book, sometimes two years, mm -hmm. more often two years. And by then everything's changed. Yeah. You know? yeah. And you'll either get lucky or you won't in terms of that. And the publisher will have bought it before. It takes nine months uh, in, in traditional publishing for a book to see the light of day. And that's, yeah. that's if it's on a fast track. I was going to say that's a quick one. Yeah. Um, you know, you you wrote a series, five book series, and then you went to standalone suspense. Yeah. Was that a purposeful shift for you? Was that a new interest? You know, uh, you know, because your series is is traditional mysteries, right? Um, and so suspense is a different genre. Yeah. Um, so so why did you make that shift? I I just got an idea for a book and. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell it real fast, but I mean, when Don and I stopped working together, I was terrified that I wouldn't have an idea for a book because what I knew was I wanted to write based on my own experience, not on a fictional character who was a police officer or a psychologist or anything mm -hmm. that I was not. So I needed to write domestic suspense seemed like the right place for me. And I went to a yard sale. I've told this story a million times. I went to a yard sale around the corner and I I knew the house. They were having, they were selling the toilet and the, you know, they were selling all kinds of stuff from inside the house. And my daughter had played in the house with the previous daughter of the previous owner. So I recognized all this stuff and, and I'm chatting up the woman in the driveway and what, how are they renovating the house and having a nice little talk. And she finally said, do you want to go inside and look around? And I said, I, I would. And I went in and it was beautifully, they had taken down the walls. It was gorgeous. And halfway through my little tour, I thought, what if a woman goes to a yard sale? Somehow she talks her way into the house. She goes inside and she never comes out. Hmm. <laughs> and I got out of that house fast. It really creeped me out. And that I, so I knew it was a good idea. I ran home. And by the time I got home, I decided that the woman... Having the yard sale in my story would be nine months pregnant, about to have a baby. And the woman who comes to the yard sale and disappears is also nine months pregnant. So that's the ticking clock. That's the, you know, they always say there have to be big stakes, high stakes, mm -hmm. but it's more higher stakes than uh, the birth of a baby. So, yeah. uh, so I went home and I wrote the yard sale scene. The scene that opens that book is the first first pages I wrote and it was right after coming home from that yard sale I didn't know what had happened to her I didn't know if there had been a murder I didn't know what the relationship between the two women was all of that was critical to the story and I but once I decided that they were going to have been in the same high school graduating class mm -hmm. that gave me some fodder to go back and think about what was it like in high school? What, what about the girl who was teased by all the other kids and was kind of an outsider? And what if 10 years later she shows up at your yard sale and she's pregnant and so are you? And so all of that. And also what about the football players and the cheerleaders and then those of us who painted scenery in the drama right. club, you know? And I, so I, all of that, it was such a liberating experience writing this book because I wasn't trying to get someone else's experience and make mm -hmm. a story. It was finding a story. It was just a really different process. Um, and it was, uh, it worked. I mean, it, that, that book was uh, optioned for film and it was turned into a, a lifetime movie and it gave me, mm -hmm. uh, it gave me a career on my own. Yeah. yeah. And you, um, when when you t talked about writing with your collaborator, you talked about outlining and meeting every week. With this other novel, the idea came to you, started writing. But are you an outliner? How? What's your? What do you have a different process for the two um, two different genres, or how? What's your process like, Callie? Uh, 
I do whatever works, and it tends to be a little different from each book. And that, in this case, I needed to write about 50 pages and then stand back yeah. and say, where am I going with this? Who is this main character? It's always the question, who is this main character and what is going to happen to her in the course of the book? That is the most important question for you to answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, people say, is it, is it plot or character? And the, the answer is it's both. It's how are both going to work together for you. So I needed to figure that out. I need to, to realize that she needed to have had miscarriages. This was important, that the husband needed to have been a football player in high school. That There are all kinds of things that had come to me that would then affect the story. What about this woman who, who goes missing? You know, she was very odd in high school and very much teased. And, and, you know, just all of that. Once I had that, I still didn't know what happened to the woman. But I had some idea of what was going to happen in the next 50 pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and where I was going to go at the end. So I usually start outlining. I, I usually try to write some to get my characters uh, sort right. of blown up, uh, semi-blown semi up. And then I will outline as much as I can see. So it's more detail in the beginning and then less as, and then as I write, I change because I never write what I thought I was going to write. I, I make it what I did and then I revise and I can put more detail in. So I kind of push the outline ahead of me, but it's like training wheels or, or, or guardrails Mm -hmm. to kind of keep me on the track. So I don't end up writing a hundred pages that I then have to throw out. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So that that's my, but the other, the other thing that I find useful in the beginning, one of the hardest things in the beginning is you have so many characters and so many ideas and the setting and the themes and all of these 8 million things running around in your head. And it's like, you can't sleep at night because it's, it's all just a jumble. And at least for me, I mm-hmm. need to get organized. And one of the things I have found very helpful is, um, I know this sounds weird, but I like, you know, you can get these decks of uh, uh, index cards that are, you know, some are pink, some are yellow, some are green, some are blue. So you have about six colors in there. And I, when I, when I, after I've written a little bit and I know what the book is going to be kind of about, and I have ideas for characters and I have ideas for setting and I have ideas for story, I take a different color card for each of those categories. And so on a pink card, I might put a character name, what I know about her. On another pink card, another character, what, I'm, what I know about them. I might have a s- stack of setting cards, a stack of story cards, mm-hmm. a stack of, yeah. And I, I almost don't use it later, but, it's, but I have them nicely arrayed on, you know, in a little box and they make me, they calm me down. I have captured yeah. all these competing impulses in my head. And now it's, it's like, I think it's like prepping for a complicated meal where mm-hmm. you need to chop the onions, chop the carrots, chop the celery, have everything ready to go. And then you can hit the ground running when you, when you, uh, but I've, I have found that very, very useful to, uh, and you know, from that, you usually get a to-do list, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to set your book in Buford, South Carolina, you need to go there. Right. Yeah, if, right. You're, if you're going to write about a doll hospital, you need to talk to somebody who fixes dolls, you know. So, so that usually spits out a, a to-do list. I love this idea of the index cards. I, I, I also find some, I, I'm an index card fan in general, but um, sometimes writing things down like that, you're exactly right. You don't ever look at it again, but having written it down, it it makes it real for for some reason that, that you know, and, you and it's it writing, somewhere. it's not typing. Yeah, you've put it somewhere. You don't have to keep thinking about it. You know yeah. where you can find it if you need it again. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great tip for for people for sure. Tell me about because you are a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the the book and how you how you went to write a book that's also been revised and and is a is the Bible for so many people. How, tell me about that journey. Yeah, um, it came about like a complete stroke of luck uh, after my book my first book came out. 
I got invited to give a workshop at the Cape Cod Writers Center summer mm -hmm. workshop. I don't know how I got that, but I did. And uh, I think I had spoken at one of their events after my book came out. And uh, it was so long ago. Anyway, I, um, I went down there and two of the other people, you know, they like to have agents or editors in, in addition. And so two of the people there, and I'm not going to come up with their names, but one was the editor of the Writer's Digest magazine. Mm -hmm. And the other one was the books editor. And they happened to sit in on one of the classes I gave. And they came up to me afterwards and asked me if I would consider writing a book about writing a mystery. I had written one book. I had another book in process that, you know, I, and you know, on your second book, you're sure you don't know what the hell you're doing. It's second yes. book is, is, is so hard. Um, but of course, you know, the one thing you learn as you get older is never say no. You know, and when an opportunity like that lands on your lap, you just say, you know, how high? <laughs> <laughs> and uh and I'm a teacher you know I uh, when I was working in business I was an instructional designer I, mm -hmm. I would take complicated technical products and think about it from the point of view of a user what do they need to do and what do they need to know in order to do it so there's the task analysis and then the content analysis it's mm -hmm. like a it's like a two-dimensional grid and uh, I'm so used to doing that. You know, I'd been doing it for years in high tech. So I started thinking about mystery writing that way. Uh, what's the process? And for each stage, what do you need to know? So, you know, you, well, you begin with an idea. So how do you come up with an idea? What does it look like? What is, you know, how do you evaluate it? And then I would develop little worksheets for people because I believe people have to interact with the content. It's not mm -hmm. enough just to tell them. And they really don't need to know your war story. That's what a lot of writing books these days are, is, is an author just kind of, I don't know, blowing hot air, I would say. I mean, it's fun to read, but it's not teaching. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so that's what it is. It's kind of a soup to nuts. I broke it down into planning, writing, revising, and selling. Very practical, right? You know, first yeah, plan, then you, yeah. And there's all kinds of worksheets and graphs and, and things for people to fill in. And, and they've yep. set it up so that you can go to the website and download the worksheets uh, and print them yourself uh, if you have the code from the book. And uh, so, you know, it, it's very how-to, you know. It's what mm -hmm. people tell you you can't do, but actually you can. You really, it's not rocket science. And that's because it's genre fiction. That's what genre means, is that not that there's a form, not that you want it to feel formulaic, but there is a formula, something of one. I mean, and the best, the best uh, writers follow the formula, but then break it very successfully right. in some weird way. Yeah, you know, like don't uh, what what is it? Uh, play fair with a reader. Well, you know, Gone Girl is a great example of a. She actually does play fair with the reader, but. Uh, she manages to pull the wool over your eyes that went yeah. the way she does it. So anyways, they pitched me the ball and I knew exactly what to do with it. And it was very comfortable writing. I had also been uh, a book reviewer for the Boston Globe for a couple of years, reviewing yeah. mystery books. So I had all these books on my shelf that I could go to for examples. So I mm -hmm. used a lot because the other thing I believe in is don't just tell me how to do it. Show me a good example of somebody who did it. Yes. Um, and then show me another one that's totally different, so, but, yes. but where the point is the same. Um, so I used that. And it was also, I shouldn't admit this, but there was a while where Google was taking everybody's book and digitizing it. Mm -hmm. And I could run, gallop through mystery novels that I had never purchased and find paragraphs to illustrate. I mean, I don't think it, it doesn't hurt the author because I was you know, saying who, who the author was. And I'm following all the rules about uh, fair use, which is important. Uh, but uh, it was a fortunate time for me because I was able to use a lot of examples. from, And I also used quotes from authors uh, at the beginning of each chapter. Uh, it was fun writing it. It was so much easier. Than, <laughs> oh, my God. It was so much easier than, um, than making it up. <laughs> 
Well, and you embrace the genre, and I love that you talk about that because I think crime writing too. There's the three act structure that when you're a theater person or you know you know screenplays, you understand that structure that helps so much when you're writing uh, a mystery. The hardest part for me was writing about plot because I didn't really understand plot. I understood character and I understood setting. I understood a lot of things. I understand it all better now than I did when I wrote it. But um, but the hard thing was plot for me. I I I resisted the idea that there were rules and structures because mm-hmm. you should be surprised in a mystery, right? Um, so I turned to screenwriting books to educate myself. And that's where I found the most clarity, the most useful information, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly um, James McKee's story. Just Mm -hmm. it just made complete sense to me. Um, And and screenwriting is more rigid. It's quite rigid in terms of what each act has to be and and how they interact with with one another. Um, But. The main points are completely, you know, the dark night of the soul and between act two, act two and act three. You've got to have that in your mystery. There's got to be the climax, you know, all of that. However, mysteries have something different at the beginning, than, uh, which which I persisted with because movies have, I guess they have what you call an establishing shot. You know, this mm-hmm. idea of kind of bringing the reader into the milieu of the story, sort of setting everything up. But um, a good mystery has has a uh, usually will open with a um, what uh, science fiction writers would call an out of whack event, uh, which is okay. something that takes the main character and knocks them for a loop, or something that happened in the past that needs to be resolved in the present. There's this out of novel opening that often will open a book, and I wanted to talk about that because uh, a lot of books. It might be something quiet. It might be something, it might be the murder, you know, but it's something which by its, it's, it's not just um, establishing narrative. It's not exposition. It's something else. And it's exposition at the same time. So it's brutally difficult because you're trying to create the play, your world building, character building, and intriguing with this out of whack event. It's very hard. That's why that opening scene is so hard. That's why authors will often say, I'm not sure if I have the right place that I'm starting. And often they don't. And they've been told to start later. They've been told to start earlier. They're like tearing their hair out. How do I open the book in a way that serves the novel and intrigues the reader? It's very tough. Well, which is why your story about, you know, your first suspense and having that creepy feeling and writing those first 50 pages is... Yeah. You know, that set you up for the rest of the novel. Right. Um, but by then, you were probably also comfortable with if that hadn't worked as an opening, you would have gotten rid of it and changed it. Exactly. Exactly. But I do find very, very often when I write the opening scenes stick, yeah. my opening scenes tend to stick. Not always, but. That's a that's a lovely thing. <laughs> I don't know that a lot of people can say that. Um, another uh, journey that you've taken that I talked to Roberta about a bit, uh, uh, and Hank was about uh, seascape. So seascape was, I don't know how many years you all did that, but uh, it was a transformative experience for so many writers and I am always so jealous that I didn't go um you would have fit right into that class where we had (laughs) we had one amazing class and I think Barbara Ross was there and yeah there were just six women who all ended up published it was amazing yeah what brought you to that? I know you love teaching, but, you know, collaborating with, with two other writers at at a retreat that was a weekend long that yeah. literally, when you talk people to people who went to um, Seascape, um, it transformed their lives. Yeah. Uh, well, it was, it was Lucy Burdett, Roberta Islip's yeah. idea. She had, she's very entrepreneurial. And uh, there was a, a little place right on her street that was a originally I'm sure a convent and now they had retreats there and they had a cafeteria and they had a house that that had been donated to them right on the water a spectacular Mm -hmm. piece of property and you could rent the house and bring people who were staying there over to the main building for meals so it was perfect for a writing retreat and 
there really, there's nothing like that around uh, for us. So that that's reasonably priced, you know. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, you were sharing a room. It wasn't uh, the Ritz or anything, but it was, uh, and, and we, we would sit down, I'm trying to think, it was Susan Hubbard and Lucy, I'm going to call her Lucy, not Roberta, and me, and, uh, and Hank came once as a, a, a guest star. She was spectacular, of course. And uh, each time we would have, we would open it, I think our, our limit was um, 18 people, three groups of six, which would give everyone a chance to read everyone else's manuscript. You would send in 30 pages, I think. And then uh, then we had a very structured way that we would go about, they would rotate through each of us as an instructor and and I might be taught, I might be teaching character, another person would be doing your opening and the structure of the novel, because you would also bring an outline. And then, uh, and people learn not only to critique the work, but also to pitch it. We would have a, mm -hmm. an agent come one night and everybody would have wine and sit around and pitch their novel while everyone else listened. And it was just good, you know, and people got a chance to have, we scheduled one-on-ones where I had read everyone's manuscript. And so I had, I think a 30 minute one-on-one -on -one with every single one of the people wow. that was on there. Yeah. It was, you know, that's what a lot of, um, writing workshops, which I love, do not have, is that read my work and tell me if it's any good. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and somebody who's not your mother, who's not, you know, your first grade teacher or your librarian, but somebody who's, um, you may not agree with them, but uh, anyway, they, uh, I thought it was terrific. The, uh, the, what we, what stopped us was that the, um, the nunnery or whatever it was, the, uh, the retreat place, uh, had a big renovation, and so they stopped renting out the property for a couple of years. And then it's a lot of work, you know, yeah. to do that. And um, the money's not bad, you know, if you add up all the all the money that people give you and and take out the expenses, especially at a place like that, it's not too bad. And uh, so, and, and as you know, it's not easy to get paid in the, in our business for anything. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was a nice uh, little bump, but it was also just a lot of work between advertising it and then processing the uh, deposits and then processing the checks and then and then making sure that we were coordinating with the venue. And it, it was uh, it's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. Well, and it's a lot of work to pull off any event yeah. well so that people remember it fondly as opposed to having disasters come up that all people remember. So the fact that people have such fond memories of Seascape yeah. speaks to how well you all organized it as well. Yeah. Um, so Hallie, you talked about, uh, you know, you approached this publishing journey with clarity because you knew and you expected. Uh, is there anything that you would wish you'd known that you learned as you went um, or, or anything that you'd tell somebody early on their journey to just, uh, that, that will help make it, it's never going to be easy, but maybe a gentler journey for them? That is a tough question. What do I wish I knew? I mean, I had the great advantage of being in this writing family. So I, I knew yeah. how hard it was going to be. I really yeah. did. And I knew because I'm both a teacher and a writer, when somebody said something wasn't work, oh, I know, I've got a good, okay. When some, you get a lot of feedback early on about what's not working. And then you also get people who tell you, the opening is weak, you should start on page 60. Or they will tell you, the opening is weak, you need to write an opening that takes place 50 years earlier. And what they're doing is they're telling you something isn't working and then they're telling you how to fix it. And the thing that I had to learn was listen to what's not working, nod your head, write it down, think about it. And whatever they tell you to fix it, ignore that. <laughs> Come up with yeah. your own way of fixing it. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a, with that first uh, novel that Don and I got published with Dr. Peter Zak, okay, our first wave of uh, rejections, because it went through several, got resubmitted and resubmitted several times. Um, one of the editors said... I think your main character should be a woman, not a man, because you write better women. Well, that may be that I write better women, but I couldn't write 
a novel about a character like that who navigates the criminal justice system, the courts, the jails, the psychiatric units as a man, mm-hmm. and then translate that to how that would be as a woman. I don't know. And Don yeah. doesn't know. You right. know? We right. would really be weakening the whole point of having him as the main him as the basis for the main character. So I brought <laughs> I brought the manuscript to my writing group. Well, I was still in a writing group at that point, and I said, "Here's what the editor said. What do you think?" And one of the women in the group was a psychologist, and she said, "Well, I think it might be because the character you've written that." doctor, every time he has a tough situation, he apologizes his way out of it. Well, I apologize my way out of any situation that's uncomfortable. It's my way of being both a woman and in an uncomfortable situation. So the answer was not to make Peter a woman. It was to make Peter a better man. And Mm -hmm. so I worked on that was to have him toughen up, you know, stop being such a wuss. And apologizing all the time, you know, and and he even throws a punch at one point in the story. I mean, it hurts because he's not used to throwing punches. Um, But so but I had to hear that it wasn't working so I could find the right solution. Now, what a lot of writers who never get there, as talented as they are at the beginning, is they will hear criticism like, your your main character, you know, didn't intrigue me. You know, you should write him as a woman. What they would do is then, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. They yes, but you. Yeah. And they explain why they did it that way. Well, nobody cares why you did it the way you did it. The point is it's not working. Yeah. So you can do what I'm suggesting or you can come up with your own. And I off, I really, I, I urge people, just write it down. You'll have a place you can go back if you want to remember what they said. But think about why isn't it working? Why isn't it working? And fix that your way. Yeah. Be open to the criticism and don't respond to it. Yeah. People who can't take notes are are just never going to get better. I don't care how good they are coming out of the starting gate. Yeah. And it's, it is hard, but that is a skill that you develop over time as well. You, you get better at taking criticism because grateful. (laughs) <laughs> yes, the yes. Who, who, who pointed it out because just being nicey nice in a review does not help anyone get published. Right, right. And be careful about who you're asking for <laughs> for that advice because if it's somebody who doesn't know the genre or yeah. who cares about you, you know, you're not going to get the same feedback that you're going to get from exactly. somebody who's good at it. Yeah, um, for sure. For sure. So what's the best piece of advice you've either gotten or that you give? What's a favorite thing that somebody told you? And and what's the favorite piece of advice that you give to people? Well, I mean, the problem for a lot of us when we start writing is we've been in English classes, we've gotten A's, we have done really well, we've read a million novels, we know how to do this. So we think we're just going to hit the, the ground running. And then because we know good writing, when we read our first drafts, they're awful. Yeah. They're so awful. <laughs> and I always tell people, just hold your nose and write. Yes. Because if you don't get a first draft out, you're never going to get a second draft out or a third draft or a final draft. Just hold your nose and get those words on the page. That is my big advice to writers. And then open your ears. Then, you know, open, be open to what people are saying, but don't, don't do what everyone tells you to do. Think about it. I, I believe in uh, the episode I did with Barbara Ross. She um, quoted you on that. That's one of her favorite pieces of advice is hold your nose and write. Um, That's my quote. <laughs> it's great advice for sure. For sure. Um, your eloquence about sisters in crime uh, is, is um, heartfelt. And tell me about finding sisters in crime. So sister in crime in 2022 is turning 35 years old, um, which is an amazing thing. Uh, But tell me about finding sisters in crime. Well, I'm trying to remember, I I found mystery writers of America first. Mm -hmm. Um, then I somehow found Kate Flora, who was just such a powerhouse there in the very beginning with uh, when Sisters in Crime started. And she's just been such a leader in New England. And, and now she's, uh, she's isn't she president again? 
Is that she's the new vice president of of Sisters in Crime New England? So she'll be God bless her. That is really, you know, to do that after all these years, she's amazing. Um, And then I'm uh, meeting Kate. Kate was also in, uh, had taken the same class I took at uh, Harvard. Ah. And so that's where I met her, was in Arthur Edelstein's class. And she's the one who told me about Sisters in Crime, I do believe. It's hard to remember because the other place would have been through Kate Mattis at at Kate's bookstore. And so you got to, uh, you know, meet Kate, which was huge, uh, the bookseller Kate, not, not Kate Flora. And other other writers, and I was already published at that point, or maybe I had a I had a contract. So I was I, I came to it late. I could have really used the help earlier, uh, but I just didn't know about it, and I and I didn't know about Mr. Writers of America either, which was a very very different organization than it was uh, meager, tiny compared to Sisters in Crime, which was more of a there were more published writers in Mystery Writers of America than in Sisters in Crime, but there were far fewer members. Mm-hmm. So it was a very little pond to be swimming around in. Um, but Sisters in Crime, I mean, I, I remember meeting, oh gosh, all kinds of authors there who would come in and talk about their writing process and just catching up with how everybody was doing in terms of selling their first novels. And it was uh, huge just to find my people, to find yeah. And to network, you know, and from there, to, when you went to BoucherCon, you actually knew a few people, you know, yeah. and yeah. Uh, it, it's just it's it's a huge thing to uh, to start with that network. And there it is. It's all put together, ready, ready for you to just hook right into it. Well, when I first joined the New England chapter of Sisters in Crime, uh, you were the president. Oh, and my really? first meeting was at your house. And I was such a wreck about go. I mean, I wasn't, I barely said aloud that I wanted to write a mystery and here I am joining, you know, and doing this. And uh, you were so kind and generous. And also, um, you know, it was an amazing group of people who were all accepting. And so what, tell me what you're working on and having these conversations. And, and that's what one of my favorite things about Sisters in Crime is um, no matter what genre, where you are in your writing career, you're part of the community and that matters. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really huge. You start to, you start to take yourself seriously, but you know, and, and the other thing is there are people that you can ask, you know, those questions yes. I mentioned at the beginning, you know, if an agent says this, what do I do? Yes. Because it's yeah. like learning a new language. I mean, yes. you know. A language that changes all the time. Right. I mean, right. that's, it's a tricky one. Well, Hallie, thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you for, for all you do to, to help and support other writers. And thank you for your own writing, which I've enjoyed so much over the years. Well, thank you so much, Julie. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.